What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. On December 18th, 1853, Charles Spurgeon was invited to come and preach for the very first time at New Park Street Baptist Chapel, which would later be known as Metropolitan Tabernacle. There were about 80 people present that day in an auditorium that could seat 1,200 people. This was the highly esteemed greatest church in the days of the 1800s in London. However, it was rapidly declining in attendance. And Spurgeon stands and preaches for the Sunday morning service. And everybody that was there, those 80 people, were just ablaze about what God was doing in this young man. And then many began to fill the auditorium. More came that night as he preached again to lead up to a few more invitations to come and preach in January to lead up to March 1854, the church asking Charles Spurgeon to become the pastor of the church. To summarize, the first year of his ministry would be one word, crowds. Crowds, crowds, crowds came to hear this young 19-year-old pastor, the young boy preacher from Finns, they called him. And as they began to come soon, within a year's time, the church was full to capacity of 1,200 plus people cramming into the services. So that led them to meeting in another location called the Exeter Hall, From February 11th to May 27th of 1855, they moved into that place so that they could reconstruct the auditorium to open it up to where more people could seat inside or sit inside. However, because of the move to the Exeter Hall, which could seat, by the way, 4,500 people, the crowds began to flood that place. And when they moved back to the chapel... 3,000 people crammed inside a 1,500-seat auditorium. God was moving. And then on Sunday evening, October the 19th, 1856, Spurgeon, along with the leaders of his church, made arrangements for them to go and have their services in the Surrey Music Hall, which could seat 12,000 people. 12,000 people. Keep in mind... When Spurgeon moved into that Exeter Hall, the news was buzzing in London about this young boy preacher. To their surprise, the evening came and 12,000 people were sitting inside waiting for him to preach. With an additional 10,000 people standing outside of the music hall. Spurgeon mounted the pulpit like he normally did, had prayer, began to sing songs. And some, at some point in the service, there was somebody who started shouting out, Fire! 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 And then somebody shouted, The galleries are giving way! The building is falling! 
Instantly, like a stampede, people began rushing out of that music hall. And as soon as they were rushing out, the 10,000 people standing on the outside were trying to rush in to get a seat. And as you can imagine, this mob of crowd coming in and coming out resulted in horrific consequences. People moving so rapidly that they fell to the ground and were trampled upon by the stampede of these people, resulting in seven people losing their life, resulting in 28 people seriously injured and taken to the hospital, and many more were hurt. Spurgeon was about 20 or 21 when this event happened. And this was the moment that unlocked the door for Spurgeon to battle what we call depression. And if he was alive today and underneath a, a, a physician, they would, they would assign him and diagnose him with PTSD. And this would be the event that the enemy would use to attack him because of the load of burden that was upon his shoulders on this event. I say that to say this. There will always be people who oppose God. There was not a fire that day. There were people who were hecklers, scoffers, coming inside, trying to go against God's messenger in London. But one day, my friends, just like them and just like anybody else who rejects Jesus as Savior, they will stand before God because guess what? God is our judge. Biden is not your judge. Trump is not your judge. Obama is not your judge. Clinton, Bush, none of them are our judges. The Supreme Court is not your judge. The Constitution of America is not your judge. The, 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 the greatest judge in America is not your judge. God is our judge. And today as we think about that event in Spurgeon's life, which, what's interesting, I, I'm so reminded about what the enemy tries to use for evil. God can turn it around for good. It was in that moment, listen, Spurgeon was well known in the region of London in which he was involved. And of course, if 20 some thousand people are coming to hear him preach in an auditorium that only see 12,000, but then that moment would make him his message go viral, not just in all of the United Kingdom, but all over the world. The news medias began to, to write about him. And they called him a comet that would vanish away. And I bring all that up to just think about this. Here's the title of my sermon today. God is our judge. Whether it's a, a man like Spurgeon that he sends along and blesses humanity with, or whether it's a woman sitting here in our auditorium today, or a man like you, or a young boy, or a young girl, whoever it is that God sovereignly decides to use to promote the good news of the gospel, God can do that. But there will always be an enemy opposing God. And we know that Jude is writing in the first century around 67 to 70 AD and sometime before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he's writing to these Jewish believers who obviously they had some working knowledge of the Old Testament and some of these other um, important documents of the first century. 
And he's writing addressing the issue of scoffers, of apostates, of false teachers, and what I also call spiritual terrorists. Now that said, I couldn't really decide if the title of my sermon today should be God is our judge or the life of Enoch. Because the life of Enoch reminds us about God being our judge. So maybe after today's sermon, you can let me know which title you prefer. But the key thought I want to share with you from verses 14, 15, and 16 is this. The life of Enoch is a sobering reminder that God is our judge. The life of Enoch is a sobering reminder that God is our judge. This is not the only time Enoch is mentioned in Scripture. In fact, Enoch is mentioned in the book of Genesis for the very first time in chapter 5 in this lineage, in this genealogy. In fact, if you're like me, I get kind of bored sometimes reading these genealogies in Scripture. But sometimes God blesses us with unique words. And and in chapter 5 of the book of Genesis, the Bible speaks about how Enoch was a man who walked with God. He arises in the Chronicles and in in a genealogical record there. He also is in the the lineage of the Messiah in the Gospel of Luke. And he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. These are the only times that Enoch is mentioned in Scripture. And so as we think about Enoch, as we think about Jude referencing Enoch, how does Enoch remind us about God's judgment? I mean, that's the question I asked as I was meditating in this text. Because it's obvious here that the theme in verse 15 of 14 and 16 is all about God's judgment. In fact, it's one of the great themes of this little epistle. God is our judge. But the first thought I want to share with you today is from verse 14. The first of three thoughts today. Enoch reminds us that God's judgment is predictable. Enoch reminds us that God's judgment is predictable. I know what you're saying. You're saying, Brian, it's, it's been a while since I've been to church. Music was just out of this world, Grand Slam, and you're going to talk about the judgment of God. I should have just slept in today and skipped today's service. I want to be encouraged. Encourage me. Well, let me encourage you with this. God loves you so much that he warns you about his judgment. Isn't that awesome? God is is so wise and is so omniscient and is so knowledgeable that he's willing to, to warn us and share us about the coming judgment that is coming to a city and town near you. But notice here, he reminds us that God's judgment is predictable. But the interesting thing is, is here, obviously, Jude references the book of Genesis in his mind. And it says, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. The word prophecy, it gives the idea of foretelling. Now, there's two ways that you can define prophecy in, in, our, in our Bible, and number one is to foretell. That is, you're looking into the future. God gives you some knowledge, and you speak into the future, something that the roles of the prophets in the Old Testament were given. 
And then you have the other idea of foretelling. That is, I'm looking into the words that God gave the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I'm sharing with you what has already been said because it's been predicted by God and it will come to place. So the idea here is this. Prophecy foretells the Messiah's coming judgment. You can study the book of Zechariah. You can study the book of Daniel. You can study the book of Matthew, the words of Jesus. You can study the book of Revelation. You realize that the Bible is clear, both Testaments, that God loves us in such a way that he's warning us of his judgment to come. But, but the issue is here is, is when we get into this verse, verse 14 and 15, Scholars are, are kind of like a loss of words at times because if you've ever read Genesis chapter five, if you've ever read Chronicles, if you've ever read the gospel of Luke, and if you've ever read Hebrews, you realize that Enoch is not recorded in scripture of saying this. And in fact, this is the only place in the Bible that calls Enoch a prophet or it says he prophesied, which means to me that Enoch was a prophet. Can you imagine Back in the days, right before the flood, you had God raising up a prophet who was warning people of the coming judgment. And the same way, God is raising up people like you and me to warn our culture who is so antagonistic against God that one day judgment is coming. And here it even references Adam. And so I believe that, that there's a lot at stake here, but I believe that, that if Jude is going to reference the people of Israel in verse number five, if Jude is going to reference the angels who rebelled against God, in verse number six, if Judah's going to reference Sodom and Gomorrah and the people living there, if Judah's going to reference all these different things, he's also referencing Enoch. So I believe Enoch was a literal historical figure. And in addition to that, he mentions Adam. And I know this is not popular today amongst certain people. But I believe that the Adam that is mentioned here in verse 14 goes back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and is the same Adam that, that is the very first man that God created on this earth. And I believe Adam is not a fairy tale. I believe Adam is a real historical character that God made in his image. He was the first Adam. And the second Adam is Jesus. And so he's referencing the Old Testament and he says that Enoch prophesied of these things. So the idea here among scholars is, well, Enoch either, or excuse me, Jude either received revelation by God's spirit that this is what Enoch said, and that is a possibility. That Enoch also might have had in mind the apocryphal writing called the book of First Enoch. And it was written at some point during the first century, sometime uh, at least around or before or right after the life of Christ. And, and this was a um, book that or a reference material that the Jewish people would have been accustomed with. And so the idea is, is that God, of course, is inspiring Jude to write these words. And whether he's quoting from an additional source that is outside of scripture, doesn't necessarily mean that we should adopt the whole book of First Enoch as authoritative divine scripture. Does that make sense? It's imagine, imagine this. Let's say I quoted the Roanoke Times in my sermon today. Would that mean that the Roanoke Times is divine, inspired, authoritative scripture? No. It means that my reference of the Roanoke Times is an important illustration that relays this truth of what I'm about to say. And so the point is simply this, that Judas quoting a source that they were aware of for the purposes 
that, hey, hey, you've read in the Roanoke Times that, that this article about the Bible? Hey, you've read in the book of Enoch where it even says that, that judgment day is coming? And he's using it as a point of emphasis here to say that, hey, just in your own writings that you've read about, Scripture also says that judgment is coming. So think about this. It goes on to say, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So prophecy foretells the Messiah's coming judgment. Prophecy, secondly, affirms the Messiah's coming judgment. It does. It not only predicts it, it not only foretells it, but it also affirms it because it is anchored and settled in the ground. It's solid concrete because it is what God has decreed. Behold. When's the last time you used the word behold? Can you imagine? You, you, you call up your buddy or your friend. You say, behold, I got a raise at work. <laughs> behold, class, the teacher's absent. We have a sub. We just don't really use that word today. But it gives the idea of, of look and see. Behold what is to come. And then he says, the Lord cometh. The Lord comes is the idea that, hey, Jesus is going to come. This word for Lord is the word kurios in the Greek language. And it is a reference, I believe, to the fact that Jesus is our Lord and he is going to come again. And by his name, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And at his authority, every knee is going to bow. But it says here, with 10,000s of his saints. Now, the word saints here, it literally means holy ones. And so, if you've ever studied any scripture, you would realize that there are times when the Bible references the second coming of Christ, how the angels are going to return, and believers. So, I believe it's a reference to both. It's a reference to the angelic beings and the believers like you and me. We are going to return and it affirms, but then it also describes, as you see, the ten thousands of his saints. Prophecy foretells, prophecy affirms, and prophecy describes the Messiah's coming judgment. God loves you in such a way that he has foretold, affirmed, and described what the return is going to be like. God is our judge. God is my judge. God is your judge. God is all of our judges. He he is our judge. Nobody else will sit at his seat. The life of Enoch is just a sobering reminder that God is our judge. And this judgment is predictable. But secondly today, I want to now draw your focus and your attention to verse 15 and 16. And in these verses, what we read about is Enoch reminds us that God's judgment is punishable. Enoch reminds us that God's judgment is punishable. Remember in the days of Enoch of old, of Genesis chapter 5, 
He's leading up to Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 when the great flood of Noah's day is going to arrive. And Enoch could, be, could have very well been one of the ones proclaiming the good news of God. And you know he was because he was a man that the Bible says walked with God. Or in other words, as Hebrews says, a man that pleased God. But here's what I want to share with you. This judgment is serious. And if you abide under God's judgment, you will be punished. I know our culture doesn't like to hear that. Our culture likes to scoff at that. But here it says, He is going to execute judgment upon all. Would you say the word execute with me? Execute. Say it again. Execute. This gives the idea that he is going, his judgment will take place. It is something he will do. So think about this. God will execute the ungodly with justice. I was watching an interview with Larry King live and a panel of pastors and uh, a, well, a, a pastor, a Catholic priest, a Jewish rabbi, some guy who's Muslim, and then an atheist, and then um, a spiritual person. And Larry King said something to the effect that he thinks people should strive for justice in our world. But the reality is, is nobody really wants justice. Do you actually want justice in this world? Do you want justice in your own life? I know if I'm going to receive the justice of God, I'm not going to be happy. In fact, the justice of God is that this judgment will play, be placed upon all people. Notice there are, there are two key words in verse 15. It's the word all. Would you say that with me? All. And it's the word ungodly. Would you say that with me? Ungodly. In fact, the word all occurs one, two, three, four times. I counted four times. And then the word ungodly occurs four times as well. So this means that what, what is being said here is that God is going to execute his judgment upon the ungodly, all of them, every single one with justice, because he's already decreed that if you don't bow to my authority and repent and confess your sins, my judgment will be executed. This means that there's an opportunity to repent. This means there's an opportunity to cry out to God and say, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. The word ungodly gives the idea of somebody who is, is living impiously against God. But then it says, and to convince all. God will not just execute the ungodly with justice, but God will convict the ungodly with evidence. Would you say the word convince with me? Convince. Say it again. Convince. And one more time, please. Convince. This is a very important word in the Bible here. Because what it means, it means to convict fully. Now check it out now. It gives the idea that you will stand before the judge and there will be so much evidence against you. There's no lawyer that will want your case because you're undefendable. And apart from God's grace, that's not just these apostates. That's not just these false teachers. 
That's not just these spiritual terrorists that Jude's writing about. That's me, and that's you. We often think about how we need to live a blameless life. (laughs) Nobody is blameless, except the blameless, spotless Lamb of God. But then check it out now. As he moves forward here, he begins to speak about all these different things. That he, he, he says that their deeds and their words, their actions and the, the speeches and the words that they are speaking out is what will be the evidence that will convict them. But then verse 16, verse 16, God will execute with justice. He will convict with evidence, but then check this out. God will destroy the ungodly with promise. Verse 16 says that these ungodly, apostate, false teachers, and spiritual terrorists are murmurers. You know what the word murmurer means? Have you ever like tried to say the word murmurer 10 times fast? Murmurer, murmurer, murmurer. It's really hard to do that. It gives the idea of grumbling. In fact, a very similar word was used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10 by Paul. And he's recalling the wilderness journey when the Israelites were murmuring against God. It gives the idea that, that, that the lot in which they received, I don't know, maybe you've played Uno before. You cannot, unless somebody, of course, has stacked the deck. Okay, I get it. But Generally speaking, if somebody's purely shuffled the deck and they pass out the cards, you cannot control which cards you receive. And so the idea is this, is that you cannot control the lots in life that you receive. And that when you receive a lot, whether you're like me, and you didn't quite make six foot tall, you can look up at God and say, God, it's your fault that I'm not six foot tall. God, it's your fault that that I couldn't go to the NBA and play against Michael Jordan. This is the idea that they were saying, God, it is your fault that we're in this wilderness. It is your fault that you give us the same food every single day. Murmurer. And that is sin. Then it says, complainers. This gives the idea of somebody who will observe and watch just to find a fault. Your hair's a little out of place there. Your shirt needs to be ironed. Your shoelace is untied. But, but watching and observing uh, to find something wrong and then to put all the blame back on God. And it says walking in their own lust. It says, this is a phrase that Jude uses a lot. In other words, they're same, their own selfish, lustful desires. And my, how we live in a generation that is contaminated and plagued by lust. Wow, I, I, just, I just wish I had that job. I, I just, man, I really got to upgrade my car. This house is just, it's just not good enough for me anymore. Oh, man, I, I need to get a better guitar. I'll preach to myself this morning. I need to get this. I need to, I need, ah, uh, man. Always desiring what somebody else has and doing anything. Then it says, and their mouth speaks great swelling words. Gives the idea of boasting, pride, 
It is something that is very serious in the eyes of God. It is something that is so serious that Lucifer, when he led his revolt against God, he was consumed by pride and it kicked him out of heaven. That pride is so serious that it is, it is the sin in which I am fully convinced of that would holds people back from the doorway to salvation. That they could hear how Jesus died on the cross. They could hear how Jesus rose again. And all they have to do is put their faith in him. And they will, because of their pride, back away from God's grace. These false teachers, they were just speaking great words that swelled. And then it says, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. In other words, this gives the idea of flattery. They were flattering people. Walking up to somebody, giving them a compliment only so that they could receive something in return. Giving somebody this gift because they know that they want a gift in return. Going to their ball games because they want something in return. Giving them a ride to the grocery store and picking up their groceries only so that they can receive something in return. And so as we read verse 16, God promises to judge the grumbling, fault-finding, lusting, boasting, and flattering false teachers. And at some point in all of our lives, we're guilty of having some of these attributes. So today I, I urge you, I remind you, God is our judge. I'm not going to stand before you, and you're not going to stand before me. But as we think about Enoch's life and how it's a sobering reminder that God is our judge, I, wanna, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 today and just look at two more verses today from Hebrews chapter 11 because this is the, the, there's three places in the New Testament where Enoch is mentioned. It's in genealogy in Luke, and then it's also in Hebrews chapter 11. And if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, you know that that. that the writer, which I believe is the Apostle Paul, is writing by divine inspiration to, to present the idea that Jesus is superior than anything the Old Testament had to offer. And he gets to the application scene in chapter 11, and he's discussing all these people of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. It says, by faith Enoch was translated. That does not mean that he went from the Hebrew language to the Greek language or from the Greek language to the English language. That means that he left this world. And so as we think about this verse in verse 6, the third thought I have for you is this. Enoch reminds us that God's judgment is preventable. Enoch reminds us that God's judgment is preventable. Think about this. Enoch was translated that he would not see death. In the book of Genesis, it says, and he was not, for God took him. Isn't that interesting? How one of the ways that God decided to judge humanity because of our fall in the garden was so that we would all experience death. But here's a man who escaped death. And also Elijah escaped death. And all those who go up in the rapture will escape death. But here it says that he was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had a testimony that pleased God. And then verse 11 it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him or to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Today, my friends, as we think about this idea of Enoch, how he escaped death, I'm here to tell you something, he, that, that, that we're all going to die unless we go up in the rapture by God's grace. But just as Enoch escaped the first death, 
My friends, you have an opportunity today to escape the second death. And as I think about the, the life of Enoch, I'm reminded today that there are two deaths. There's a physical death that you will die. But then there's a second death that the Bible speaks of in Revelation. But how is this judgment prevented? Well, it's three ways and really fast. God's judgment is prevented by grace alone. Paul says in Ephesians, by grace you are saved. He says, it is not of any works or merit of your own, but it is only by God's grace. I'm here to tell you something today. There there is literally nothing that I could ever do in my life or ever have done that I could obtain God's grace. I can't have enough money and purchase it from God. I can't do enough good deeds. I can't learn to play all the, the instruments up here in such a way that I'm just perfectly pictured as an artist. I can't do it. There's nothing in me that can earn this grace and, and extra, extra read all about it. There's nothing in you either. But then another thought here. God's judgment is prevented through faith alone. In Galatians chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 1, we study in church history about a guy by the name of Martin Luther who was a Catholic priest involved in the trenches of Catholicism. And as he began to study some of these passages, like in Romans and in Galatians, he began to realize that, hey, hey, justification is not by the works of good deeds. It is by faith alone. It's not by doing the law. Listen, you cannot keep all the Ten Commandments. You've lied. I've lied. We've stolen, even if it was from from our job with our time. We've said God's name in vain, even if it's oh my, G-O-D, in disgust. We have looked upon another and thirsted after them sexually. We have expressed hatred to those in our life. Listen, that's just, five, that's just a handful of them. We are guilty in the eyes of God. And he, we can't keep the law. The law is a tool to expose the darkness in our life. But then check this out. God's judgment is prevented not just by grace alone, not just through faith alone, but in Christ alone. Only him. And I know this is a message that, this is something that we are totally convinced of here at our church, that in Romans chapter 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, it says thou shalt be saved. Listen, salvation is not anything I can earn. It's totally by faith and through God's grace and only through his son, Jesus. There is no other way. And Jude is reminding us that you can escape God's judgment, but only through his grace, but only through faith and only through Christ. But my question for you is this. Surely we'll die the natural death that we've all been allotted a time in place. But when we stand before God, as Hebrews writes, will we be, like John said in Revelation, the one who experiences the second death It leads into destruction for all eternity in the lake of fire? Or will we receive the great mercy of God and receive salvation full and free and live with him in heaven?
for all eternity. Which one will you receive? You know, the other day I thought to myself, how in the world can a guy like Michael Jordan become the greatest basketball player ever? And if you disagree with that, you can get right with God, the altar's open. <laughs> Just kidding. But to be honest with you, I think there's three ways that a guy like Michael Jordan becomes the greatest at his craft. The first one is drive. Got to have drive. Got to wake up every day thinking about basketball. When I'm eating my Cheerios for breakfast and my Chipotle for lunch and my Panda Express for dinner, I've got to be thinking about basketball. It gets me up out of the bed in the morning and it keeps me awake at night. Basketball, basketball, basketball. You got to have that drive. Secondly, you got to have hard work. They say Michael Jordan was the first one to get to the court and the last one to leave. But then this one is the, is the key. Scrutiny. Michael Jordan allowed certain people in his own life to scrutinize his work and his craft. That is, is his coaches that would look at his, his, his game, his form, and help him develop a better form. Then Michael Jordan would, would look at his own film, and, and he's going home at, in the evening and watching himself play basketball so he can better perform. And then he's watching his teammates and trying to scrutinize them to help them become better. And in fact, they say that to play with Michael Jordan is not the easiest task because he demands perfection on the court. But then he also scrutinized his opponents so that when his opponents were playing against him, he knew what they were going to do. I say that to say this, that God is a lot like Michael Jordan, but in the simple fact that God has a magnifying glass and he's looking down into humanity and he is scrutinizing every single corner, every single dark crevice in our life. And unless you have the grace and mercy and love of Christ surrounding you, you will not escape God's judgment. God is our judge. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith.